America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. And joining me today from Washington is a special guest host, Ali Vaz. Ali is Crisis Group's Iran Project Director. Thanks for joining me, Ali. Hi, Olia. Glad to be on. And today we're coming back to a topic we've discussed a few times in the past on War and Peace. We've talked about it from a few different perspectives, nuclear weapons. The question at the core of today's conversation is whether nuclear policy and the way we think about nuclear weapons is really changing, either on the part of nuclear weapon states or on the part of all the rest of us. With the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty Review Conference approaching in January, the promises of the nuclear weapon state signatories to that treaty to work towards reductions in greater transparency seem really ever more in doubt as these countries seem to place more rather than less emphasis on their nuclear arsenals, at least in their rhetoric, and in some cases seem to be building up those arsenals. Meanwhile, countries that are unhappy with this state of play have put forward the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which we discussed here on War and Peace some months ago with Maria Antoinette Hakes. Now, that has gathered enough signatories to enter into force, which it did in January, but the nuclear weapon states, of course, aren't signatories, so they're not bound by it. Meanwhile, non-proliferation efforts are faltering. Trump's legacy looms large. His unilateral withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal or the JCPOA in 2018 has hindered efforts to control nuclear buildup in the region. Iran is now thought to be only a month away from breakout, which is the ability to enrich enough fissile material to weapons grade for a single nuclear weapon. Iran was 12 months away from breakout when Trump stepped into the Oval Office. While talks between Iran and the P5 plus one resumed in Vienna recently, indirect between Iran and the United States, of course, few expect negotiations to be easygoing given the two sides' mismatched expectations. Iranian hardliners, including the new president, Ebrahim Raisi, seem to believe that the U.S.'s sanction stick is worn out and its sanctions relief carrots are rotten. Having accumulated much more nuclear leverage, Iran is likely to drive a harder bargain at the table. What's uncertain is whether Tehran would also have sufficient flexibility to meet Washington halfway, as the alternatives to restoring the JCPOA range from unattractive to outright ugly for both sides. So joining us today to help understand all of these very complicated dynamics is the exceptionally qualified Dr. Emma Belcher. Dr. Belcher, Emma, is the president of the Plowshares Fund, which has for the past 40 years played a tremendously important role in supporting organizations and individuals thinking through and actively trying to take steps to protect us from the danger of nuclear weapons. Dr. Belcher, in her own right, is also and long has been among the leading voices on these topics. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Olga and Ali, and uh, terrific to be here with you. So nuclear policy debates, you've been following this for a very long time. What do you think are the key things that have changed recently, or has anything changed? That's a great question, Olga, to ask whether things actually have changed. And as you know, this problem is more than 75 years old. And I think what we've seen over that time is really a back and forth between thoughts and policies and posture on nuclear weapons. So we've seen really over that time a build-up of arms, we've seen arms races, critical moments of near use. 
And then the recognition of the need for diplomacy and restraint, strategic stability talks, arms control negotiations and reductions. But now we seem to be back into a cycle of arms racing again, as you mentioned in your introduction, which, as we know, is a really expensive and dangerous endeavour. And we've also now and more recently had periods where policymakers have considered expanding the roles and missions for nuclear weapons, which is really a terrible idea because the more options there are to use nuclear weapons, the more likely it is that they'll be used at great cost to both US and global security. And I think we've really been lucky not to have experienced a nuclear disaster until this point, either by intentional acts of war or by miscalculation or accident. So we have been lucky, but I wonder how long is this luck going to continue? And I think really what we see persistently here is that one underlying feature of this era is the dominance and persistence of nuclear deterrence theory. It's really still the driving force behind nuclear weapons development and modernisation. So that's been consistent over those 75 years. And as I'm sure most of your listeners know, this theory was generated in the late 1950s and and early 60s, really based on the premise that nuclear weapon states will not attack each other with nuclear weapons because that would lead to mutually assured destruction. So that is, I nuke you, you nuke me, and we all lose. So thus, we are deterred from moving either of us. But one of the reasons that nuclear weapons have become perhaps more prevalent is that it's not just nuclear weapons use countries deter, right? The idea is that the nuclear peace, as it were, holds because everybody is so scared of one another's use that they don't use nuclear weapons. Do you think that countries are relying more on nuclear weapons to deter other things as sort of, if you do something to hurt me, well, don't forget I'm a nuclear weapon state and I can do a lot more damage to you than you can do to me. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing is the increased thinking. This was definitely very prominent by the Trump administration, actually, in terms of thinking about potential nuclear use to deter some kind of other attack like a cyber attack. This, I think, is where we're seeing countries that do have nuclear weapons thinking about possible ways in which they might use them. We're looking at massive modernisation at uh, drastic costs at the moment. Here in the United States, I think the projected cost is upwards of a trillion dollars over the next several decades to be spent on nuclear weapons modernisation. So I think we are entering a pretty dangerous period where the countries that have weapons are looking to build them up. We've seen definitely China looking to increase its number of nuclear weapons, which is causing a huge amount of concern in the United States in particular and in the region. So I think we also have this factor of US allies looking to the US um, to provide deterrence action against their countries by countries that might have nuclear weapons and a lot of concern there about what the rise of China means and the credibility of the US guarantee to deter countries I think we're seeing increasingly countries in the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific region, you know, worry about the rise of China and looking to think about what US guarantees for their assurance means. So what's the alternative to deterrence? I mean, when we've talked about the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons on this podcast before, the idea that Marie Antoinette Jacques put out was almost fine. You all can have your deterrence. Not everyone needs to buy into that framework. But, you know, the threat is to the planet as a whole. What is the alternative, given that everyone is afraid? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we're in this period now where deterrence is the predominant theory. And, you know, the logic that I've just explained is there. And I think the challenge here is in theory, the logic is sort of fine, even though it's really macabre and morbid. The problem is in practice. And so really the theory ignores the fact that the most likely scenario of nuclear weapons use is by accident, miscalculation or faulty technology and not really an intentional attack. And so the idea of this sort of peace that's held by deterrence is a really challenging one because we're gambling our lives and those of future generations on a theory that's questionable in practice, vulnerable to mistake and miscalculation. And these are all very human factors that are at play. So I think we've got this dominant theory that we rely upon at our peril. We've been lucky so far. I think it's imperative that we try to figure out how we can live in a world that doesn't rely on mutual annihilation, but that guarantees our security. So this is the real challenge. And I think a lot of people think that this is impossible. And my concern is that if we just accept this and if that we don't challenge some of the core assumptions about deterrence theory, if we don't try to find a better way to assure security, we're going to doom ourselves to disaster. And that maybe sounds a little bit dramatic, but I think that it's incumbent upon us. We created this problem. This is a human problem. We should be able to solve our way out of this problem. And if we don't try, I feel we're just going to keep repeating the same mistakes. And it's very frustrating when we see these sort of cycles of the same issues coming back and forth. And, you know, we had to look at issues between the United States and Russia or the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And here we are back again going through another cycle of potential build-up modernisation. Thankfully, we're now looking at increased diplomatic efforts through treaties such as the New START agreement that's been extended for another five years between the United States and Russia. But we're just going to keep repeating this so long as we rely on nuclear weapons to guarantee our security. So this is why I think it's just critically important that we challenge some key assumptions and that we bring in people from outside this typical security or nuclear field, people who can bring creative ideas, who can challenge the status quo, and who can help us solve our way out of this current challenge. So what are some of these creative ideas and where are they coming from? I mean, particularly folks from new generations that maybe look at the system that was set up by their elders and aren't that happy about it. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you refer to it as a system because it really is. And when we look back at the origins, it was developed decades ago, as I mentioned earlier in the 50s and 60s, really by a very small group of elites, predominantly white men. And we see that this has really been perpetuated and we have the decision makers, let's say here in the United States, deep inside the Pentagon that are really just a few people who determine US nuclear posture. And it's very inaccessible. It's very closed off. It's viewed as very secretive and untouchable. And I really think that there's a huge role for civil society to play here to be able to shine a light on some of these challenges, some of the way that nuclear policy is made, and can actually bring forth some interesting ideas. And I think right now we are seeing some people really start to challenge the status quo. 
challenge assumptions, demand a more inclusive nuclear policy weapons discussion, looking at the effects of nuclear weapons, the harms that they cause, particularly to people of colour, particularly to marginalised communities who've been subjected to testing and living decades later with uh, higher incidences of uh, health challenges because of that. Weapons testing has an effect on the climate and our environment, as well as our security. And I think as we're living at a really interesting moment now where people are challenging the way that decisions are being made, they're challenging the impacts that not only nuclear weapons but other issues are having on particular communities, we're in a really ripe moment for people to be coming together and questioning, do nuclear weapons really keep us safe? Why do we have so many? Why are we about to spend over a trillion dollars here in the United States on more nuclear weapons when we have currently a global pandemic that we're struggling with, when we have huge challenges in terms of financing domestic programs such as infrastructure, education, healthcare. This is really a time where we are seeing interest from people outside the nuclear area in ways that I think are going to be really important in the the coming decade. So if I were a U.S. government official, I would say, fine, but modernization is necessary. If you're going to have them and you're not giving them up, you don't want them to be old, rusty, and unreliable. You want them to be functional and fit for purpose, and you want to be able to count on them to not do anything, to avoid these accidents and these... um, inadvertent uh, launches that you said we should be worried about. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's a certain amount of modernization that because we have these nuclear weapons is essential. We can't have a nuclear force and not have it safe and secure. We're obviously increasingly also seeing potential new types of technology that could challenge command and control. We're looking at cyber issues and all the rest. So absolutely, we do need to spend a certain amount of money on modernisation. I think the debate isn't or shouldn't really be modernisation, yes or no. It should be modernisation, how much do we really need to fit the current challenge that we're in and how much is just excess that's actually not necessary and that makes things more dangerous. And I think one kind of area that the US is looking to invest over $260 billion in is a new ground-based strategic deterrent, which it's for its intercontinental ballistic missiles. Now, there's really serious question about whether intercontinental ballistic missiles are actually useful at all, given the fact that Without them, the US could still deter attack through its forces at sea. So really the kind of spending that we are questioning here is the spending that really is in excess and can't really be defended by the types of security concerns we have now. So I recognise where we are right now in the world. A certain number of nuclear weapons we have, around 13,000, predominantly between the US and Russia, China interested in building up its forces. There's a certain amount of relying on making sure we have the most sort of safe and reliable system now, but thinking about where do we want to be in 10, 20, 30 years? How do we get to that point where we're no longer living in this really challenging environment in which a mistake or miscalculation could be devastating? War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. 
You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and my colleague Ali Vaz and I are speaking with Dr. Emma Belcher of the Plowshares Fund about nuclear weapons. Emma, one thing I've always uh, admired about your work, both when you were at MacArthur Foundation and now at Plowshares, is that you're excellent not just at identifying the problem, but also at coming up with solutions. And I'm really intrigued by this idea of getting more people involved in this field to come up with new ideas, making sure that uh, the diversity that we get in terms of inputs uh, is adequate. But I want to draw a parallel to climate change, which is a similar problem that affects everyone and maybe doesn't suffer from the same limitations that we've had in this field. There's also a very active civil society and an activist community. And yet it's very difficult to translate ideas into policy changes. So if you could just give us a better sense of how you envision coming up, not just with the ideas, but convincing policymakers to change course. Yeah, thanks, Ali. And I share that observation and the concern or the challenge here that we have in breaking through to get not only policymakers, but the public to understand the really critical situation we're in and what can be done to try to make changes. I think you put your finger on one really important factor, that it's critically important to have an independent civil society that can take its complex research, distill it into actionable recommendations for policymakers, who can educate decision makers and the public, hold governments to account when they're doing the wrong thing and support them when they're doing the right thing. And that's something that organisations, particularly like International Crisis Group and your work, Ali, I've got to really applaud you in your work, um, that you do all the time to try to make sure that we're bringing the best ideas and solutions to these intractable or seemingly intractable problems. And so we need more of that. And we need more people in the game. And, you know, I think the challenge is that we don't have the kind of awareness or the pressure for the right decisions to be taken. And here in the United States where I'm sitting today, we've got a president who's on the record as favouring restraint in US nuclear policy, yet he's getting significant pushback by merely saying he wants to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in US foreign policy. And we're also getting people who question the status quo, even in the mildest ways, be fired from their government jobs at the Pentagon. And when we have little awareness of the nuclear dangers, there's no pressure on policymakers to make the right decisions. And when we only have change that's short-term and incremental, we're in a really bad position. So don't get me wrong, we've got to address immediate dangers and reduce the risk that weapons pose. And there are people doing that. But in the absence of something bigger, something to really break that circuit, we're just going to doom ourselves to repeating cycles, possibly until it's too late. So this is why I think we need a dramatically new approach. And we need people who aren't just nuclear policy experts. We need people who are lawyers who can bring best practices, say, from the climate area that you mentioned to bear on nuclear weapons. We need people who are experts at messaging and at communications to help people understand the challenges that we face. And we need people who recognise that issues like nuclear weapons have an impact on people's everyday lives. We need voices of those who are from impacted communities. We need people who see the connections between colonialism and racism and nuclear weapons. And we see we need other people who are part of global movements who see that nuclear weapons are part 
of or addressing the nuclear weapons threat is part of getting to a more peaceful and secure world that we all have in mind. So at the end of all of that, I'm really excited by some of the people I'm seeing who are entering this space and who are actually dedicating their time and resources in really creative ways. And there is a really exciting project that I've come across called Horizon 2045, and it's working to look at ending the nuclear weapons century by 2045, so 100 years after the first use of a nuclear weapon in war. And they have managed to attract all sorts of people, people who are experts in technology, people who are experts in, let's say, blockchain as a particular kind of technology, people who are economists, behavioural economists, neuroscientists, all of these types of people to ask questions, challenge assumptions, and try to come up with a different way and a different paradigm. Now, the surface has only been scratched on this work. We don't know where it's going to go, but I see huge potential contributions to come out of this group. So, Emma, the US and Russia are holding strategic stability talks to talk about the future of arms control. There's some promise that there will be at least limits between the two countries that have over 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. But as you also said, China is building up its arsenal. The UK is not, but seems to have kind of raised its limit. It said that, you know, we might be a little bigger than we'd said we would in the past. France is holding steady. But neither of these countries have been engaged in any of these conversations before. The United States wanted to bring China to the table. Russia has talked about putting the French and British arsenals on the table um, kind of from the U.S. perspective. What's the logic for China or France or the U.K. to actually start talking about reducing their arsenals? Yeah, it's a great question. I do think it is important to be able to engage all of these countries in discussions. I think, you know, obviously China's expansion of its intercontinental ballistic missiles arsenal is troubling. There were hundreds of new silos found this year. And so there's concern there. And I think we do need to use it as an opportunity to talk with China I think, though, it's probably too soon to talk with China about reductions. I mean, I think from China's perspective, it's probably thinks that we would like to actually build up its armaments till it gets to a point where it thinks that some kind of discussion about reductions with the United States and Russia would be sort of on more of an equal footing. And they're very much very far from that. So I don't see it likely to be in China's interests to engage in those discussions. But I think it's critically important to talk about strategic stability to talk about what worries China and what can the US do to reassure China about its intentions and reassure China that it would not attack it first. A policy that I think a number of people in the US talking about, which is no first use policy. And I think to say that the United States will not use its nuclear weapons first to initiate any kind of nuclear war and would only use it either in retaliation. That could be a really good first topic for US-China talks. China does have a no first use policy, whether or not, you know, everybody sees that as credible is another matter. But some kind of discussion in which the US and China can talk about stability, how they could structure some kind of no first use policy where both sides would find it credible and reassuring would be a really good first step as we try to take the temperature down here a little bit in terms of the anxiety around China and its intentions. So I think this is a lesson that we've learned over the years that 
diplomacy, engagement, and talking about strategic stability and hopefully then arms control and reductions is critically important. Letting it go and building up a reaction kind of cycle is really potentially dangerous. Let's talk about the Iran nuclear deal. Plowshares Fund played a really significant role in helping achieve this agreement in 2015. And as we said, talks have resumed recently on November 29th to see if uh, both sides can figure out a pathway back into full compliance with the agreement. I first want to get a sense of how you see the prospects for restoring the JCPOA, and then also if you could address the risks of failure and a diplomatic breakdown. First, Ali, I really want to reiterate, thank you for your work at International Crisis Group. We're really proud at Plowshares to be supporting it and others who are working to try to make sure that the United States really re-enters the uh, JCPOA and that it and Iran recommit to their commitments. And we've got together a, a pretty strong group of people who represent a range of perspectives on this front, people who understand that the best prospect, I think, to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and to lead to longer-term regional peace and stability is through a return to the JCPOA. I think, you know, there are three potential scenarios here. One is that is full re-entry to the deal as it was negotiated in 2015. Both sides have expressed an interest in it. I hope that's what's going to happen. I'm a little pessimistic at the moment. I think the next scenario is maybe a little more likely, which is a so-called less-for-less deal where both sides might not have everything that they initially had in 2015, but it would still be an accomplishment to have diplomacy sort of win out here, be seen as the pathway forward, and some kind of a deal whereby we really put the brakes on any development of Iran's capabilities. Now, the challenge on that front, though, is it might trigger congressional review, as you very well know, under the 2015 Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, INARA, and it would provide Congress with the opportunity to review the, the terms of agreement. So that would be a challenge. Congress would then have 60 days to review any changes. And potentially, if Congress wanted to, it could pass a joint resolution of disapproval, which would really prevent the deal from going into effect Although the President Biden could veto the bill and Congress would be unlikely to override the veto, so the deal would stay in effect, but this would be a really ugly process. That's one other kind of option is that less for less deal. There's another option again, I think, whereas if things fall apart in this recent round of negotiations in Vienna, maybe there's a prospect of an interim deal that freezes the clock on Iran's nuclear program and lets talks continue without the sort of same time pressure. I think that's not as ideal. But then the worst case scenario is no deal which would mean to really ramp up efforts to begin a new negotiation process for a completely new nuclear deal, which would be challenging, would take time, and we'd have to work to prevent escalation of tensions and potentially some kind of military action. I think that would be a pretty bad scenario to be in. So, you know, I think they're different scenarios. I'm hopeful that we will get something that 
we can sort of take a bit of a deep breath, gives us some more time. But I would just say I'm a little pessimistic about immediate breakthroughs. So I just hope that both parties stay in discussions and talks. We can either get back to the 2015 Iran deal as it was or some kind of less for less deal and then we can move on to addressing issues of greater concern down the track. So diplomacy needs to be front and centre and even if it doesn't happen immediately, we need to make sure that that's the only option on the way forward. I think this really does speak to just how challenging all of these uh, topics are, right? This kind of the deep dive into the JCPOA, the big picture thinking about how you can walk away from reliance on nuclear weapons. All of it is a very, very thorny, very, very complicated set of issues. And I'm glad you are helping to support folks uh, to try to think of new solutions because it is very clear that we need them. Emma, Dr. Belcher, thank you so much for coming on and joining us. Thank you very much. We hope you learned as much as we have. If you want to learn more and hear more about Dr. Belcher's and Plowshers' work, make sure to check out their website, plowshers.org, for more on crisis groups analysis, especially on Iran and the nuclear deal. Take a look at our website, crisisgroup.org. And you can also check out the Plowshares podcast, uh, Press the Button, for more on a lot of these issues and some of the work that uh, they're doing and supporting. You should also follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Uh, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. I'm at Oya Olaker. Ali, what's your Twitter handle? Ali Vaez. And uh, you can also follow Dr. Belcher. She's at E-M-L Belcher. Uh, Crisis Group is also on Facebook and Instagram as at Crisis Group. Please tweet at us uh, with any suggestions you have for the podcast. We will be looking out for them. We would love it if you could leave us rating and reviews as well. Also, feel free to message us at podcast at crisisgroup.org if you have any suggestions or requests for future episodes. We will listen. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. Check them out for some of the others. Big thanks to producer Bull Media and our coordinator, Finn Domber-Johnson. And the biggest thanks, as always, to you, our listeners. We are looking forward to chatting with you again in about two weeks. For now, though, goodbye. Goodbye and take care. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.